Hello, everybody, and welcome to the interview with Jordan Shelley. And would you like to say hello? Hello, everybody. Uh, good evening. It's very nice to be here this evening. Brilliant. And what's the name of the little dog that's joined you? Gorgeous little storm who sat behind me, who's a little chihuahua. Did I hear that this chihuahua had done something amazing um, with regards to rodent control? Yes, yes, she's incredible. She uh, overtook the Jack Russell as chief fatter um, and is quite a, um, quite a profound rat killer now. Wow. <laughs> she spends her, her life out in the barn chasing things. It's quite amazing considering some of them are nearly the same size as her. Yeah, they're all dog, aren't they, Chihuahua? Yeah, they don't definitely. really be small, but they, they, they know what they're doing. Right, well, I'm going to kick this off, Jordan, but let's go right back to what were you like as a little boy growing up? What, as were, a little boy? Were you a tremendously studious person? What no, not like at all. At school? Tremendously studious. That's definitely not what <laughs> any of my teachers will have used. <laughs> I used to spend most of the time walking my teacher's dogs, if I'm honest um and that would be how i spent most of my time probably i was very lucky to go to school in uh, uh henley and we were right by the river and so i used to take all the, all the teachers dogs for walks down by the river and that was basically how i spent my time was this a boarding school or was it was it... indeed yeah oh my goodness boarding school yeah so i went there from the age um of about 13 um i didn't finish i, I left just before lower sixth um, but it was the most amazing school. I had a lovely time and met some incredible friends there and spent a lot of time walking dogs as well. Um, mm -hmm. But I was ready to go to work and that was when I decided to move to Spain. Uh, um, and was it so much a move to Spain or a runaway to Spain? Did, did you just absolutely just pick yourself up and go? or was it I picked myself up and went. It wasn't planned, really. I mean, we were discussing it and I sort of persuaded mum that it was a good idea that I went to study Spanish. Um, or she persuaded me. I can't really remember what way round it is. Uh, <laughs> and I knew out there I could get a job working as a veterinary assistant in a way that I couldn't hear. So um, that was my aim, was I would go there and learn Spanish. I also had a dog at the time. My mum didn't know. And I'd rescued a dog down in Spain in the summer holidays and fallen in love with him, a little wobbly dog called Max, my wobbly dog. He was oh. all... Bless him. He had damage to his cerebellum, which caused like an intention tremor. That was kind of, yeah, how he looked the whole time. The sweetest little thing. And they said he wouldn't live more than a couple of weeks. And uh, he was with me nine years. Aww. Bless him. It was such an amazing. And he was really the beginning of my journey into wanting to know more about dogs and wanting to spend my whole day with them. I mean, obviously, I'd loved animals since mm -hmm. being quite young, but he really was that catalyst, um, you know, to, to, to wanting to go and learn more. So I would expect that your parents spent a small fortune on your education <laughs> and yeah. were hoping that you were going to do something that would be tremendously financially rewarding. How did they take, the, I want to go to Spain, spend more time with the dog I've fallen in love with, and um, I, I want to be a vet. And was, and <laughs> surely it wasn't um, exactly you know yeah i think you can imagine how it went down um i'm fortunate that they're very um tolerant which is uh, um you know my mom, my mom and dad were very tolerant and and you know loving and so actually although they wanted me uh, um maybe not to necessarily follow the path that i did life is one of those things where things get thrown up at you and mm -hmm. you end up going your own way you know and unfortunately my dad passed away whilst i was living in spain 
Oh no, um, I didn't realise that that was the time. Yeah, so he was. I was actually living in Spain when he passed, and uh, I was eighteen at the time. Oh my goodness! And, yeah, because I remember he'd been to my eighteenth birthday, and and so he he passed away that December, um, just before, before Christmas. It was the Christmas was it, was it un December. totally unexpected? Was he? Was yeah, he completely crashed? unexpected. He was. I spoke to him on the phone the night before. He had a bit of a headache, but he was well. He'd been he'd had a medical checkup six months before. Um, and the valve on his heart stopped working, just like that. And oh, God. Unfortunately, he passed away uh, um, very instantly. And me being a completely disorganised teenage boy, didn't even have a passport to get back into the country. I had been mm. stolen and I didn't bother to renew it. Mum had been going on at me, bless her, for ages, saying, please get it done in case there's an emergency. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, which obviously I should have done. Uh, um, but fortunately, they managed to get me back on emergency paperwork that same day. Um, and, and then I came back and um, decided, uh, I don't know whether it was a mutual decision to start with, I think I'd probably, if I'm totally honest, wanted to go back in the beginning, uh, back to Spain, but decided that the best thing would be to be in England, um, and then started working as a dog walker in London. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, did you have brothers and sisters around? I'm the eldest of four. Oh my goodness. I'm the oldest of four. I knew there yeah. were others. I wasn't sure it was that many. Yeah, oh um, there's four of us. So uh, it's nice. We're a great little family unit. They're lovely. Oh. We got so, on very well. I don't live at home, so I don't get to see them as often as I'd probably like. But mm -hmm. I, I couldn't live in London. I love the countryside and I love being out with the dogs with big. So, um, yeah. So did you bring Max back to London when yeah. you came back? Gosh, that must yeah. be quite hard to do. Oh, <laughs> you know, the, um, the the best bit was actually probably before then when I was learning Spanish and I'd snuck him into my uh, my house where we weren't allowed dogs. It was a house share. I think there was about six of us, all students, learning Spanish. And every time the um, landlord would come round, I'd get a friend to hide with him in the cupboard. It <laughs> 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 uh, was great fun. Um, and yeah, he was my little companion, really. The two of us travelled around Europe. He was it's terrible, I wouldn't do it now, it's quite dangerous, but he'd get on the motorbike with me. So I had a Vespa. <laughs> and he's, yeah, he'd sit in my backpack. So he'd sit in the bag, his little head sticking out, wobbling away. Um, and that's how I'd get to him from the vet clinic where I was working. And yeah, uh, um, great fun. I, I, I really, it was such a nice time of my life. And then moved back to England and, and things kind of started from there. And it wasn't it was a little bit longer after that but we kind of first oh yes we'll, we'll get on to that in a second mm. so you 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 you're back in in london you can't mm -hmm. without doing a lot of training become a vet nurse i, I suspect is that yeah in this country that's the case yeah yeah so you couldn't do the same work so you, um you decided to become a dog walker so how, how did you pick up your clients i mean were there dogs you already knew or some dogs i already knew but a lot of it was word of mouth walking around the area you know me i like to talk so i would just wonder about chatting to people with dogs and by the end of my time working there i think i was walking about uh, um five in the morning and five in the evening yeah um and that i really enjoyed and it just kind of snowballed from there obviously i've worked with um other dog trainers before and helped them and assisted them and they were of the more um old school persuasion shall we say mm. um and that was obviously where i learned what i learned um yeah. and i started 
I started doing bits of training for clients because they'd say, oh, well, how come a dog does that for you and not for me? You know, that's the standards and go, well, it's just because I do it every day. But started to show people and demonstrate things. And that's so you really... Just practically doing stuff, really. And, yeah, it, yeah. and, it, and you got a, a natural talent. Oh, for... I've been practically doing things from quite a young age. I mean, so the vet clinic that I worked in in Spain, they'd known me since I was about eight or nine. Oh. Um, and that was when I was a little kid out there on holidays, bringing in every single stray cat, dog, pigeon, I mean, everything really, uh, yeah. driving them absolutely bonkers. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's how I met them uh, um, to begin with. Um, and I suppose I've always been doing something with animals. I've always got some kind of a rescue creature living somewhere, somewhere in the house. Mm -hmm. um, it's still like that now. <laughs> yes, yes, I've noticed the acquisition. <laughs> but, but um, I suppose you were living in quite a, a, a wealthy area of London. So, so the yes. dog walking that you were doing was probably for some really interesting people who... Some very interesting people. And I was in, you know, I was in like St John's Wood, um, Camden Town, kind of central London, around that area. Um, and so obviously, yeah, it was, it was very busy. Um, and lots of people looking for dog walkers and dog walking. And um, I was surprised also how many uh, people were looking for trainers, even though a lot of them didn't even walk their own dogs. But there we go. Um, it was an interesting, it was an interesting eye-opening experience. Um, yes. So, you, so yeah. it, it, you got to know lots of different dogs and lots of different problems and lots of interaction with with clients, really. So it was it was learning on the job. Yes, a hundred percent. It was learning on the job yeah. and uh, um, all real, uh, practical kind of hands-on type stuff, which is my preferred way of learning. Anyway, I think uh, I yeah. learn by doing, not even really by seeing or by listening. I learn by doing. I have to have a go before I can really understand the process, and I think that's just the way my brain's wired. Okay. Mm -hmm. And had you been watching any any television with? <laughs> Yeah, I've been watching television. Um, I was a very big um, Milan fan. Um, yes, he, he, yeah. shall, he who shall not be named. I was uh, very much one of his fans. Um, well, well Caesar seen... began as a dog walker, didn't he? He began yeah, yeah, for sure. people's yeah. dogs and he, he was grooming them as well, I think. Grooming yeah. and, and people started asking him for advice. So he was very much someone who develop well, their own method I suppose. When you're, when you're able to go and walk um, a load of dogs in a way that other people you know they struggle when they're walking the one they look at you and they go but how have you managed that and then they do ask questions they start mm -hmm. trying to figure out what it is that you're doing and how you've managed all these different things and, and then ask questions about uh, behaviours and my understanding of behaviour then was from what I've learned from him and one uh, other ex-military uh, um, trainer. An ex, like old ex military trainer, so it was a long, long time ago. Yeah. yeah. And do dogs in Spain, um, things are quite different from here, aren't they? The type Very. of dogs that you, you meet in Spain, the native dogs, the, the breeds that. Um... More like Pedencos, like sight houndy types, and then a lot of big, big molossary mastiny types, you know. Yes. Nice. <laughs> yeah, lovely. I've got one downstairs. Oh. Yeah. And do people more likely have the dogs outside in Spain? Or? Yeah, and dogs tend to tend to roam a little bit. I don't, don't know whether it's changed a lot recently, but, you know, I remember coming back here and having not really walked the wobbly dog very much on lead, suddenly being in a place yeah. where I actually had to be on the lead all the time. It was really, that was a bit of a culture shock. Yeah. Because in Spain, he'd just always be there. Like we were wandering mm -hmm. around and he'd just be there next to me. That was kind of 
how it was um, mm. with all the dogs. Uh, um, and I suppose that a lot more people there used to still kind of open the door and let the dog go for a walk. It still happens in the camp, but not so much down on the coast, you know, where I was in Malaga. I don't think that happens anymore down there. So how did you get your big break on television? Because obviously word of mouth that you were helping sort so, dogs out. Well, when word of mouth, so in the beginning, I actually worked with another um, producer first. Mm -hmm. um, we'd kind of, through a friend, had met, and then I, I'd been out helping him with one of his dogs um, in the parks, done lots of uh, um, training and walking together, and he was really interested in making something. Um, we worked on a pilot together, and then unfortunately, he died of a heart attack quite suddenly. Oh my goodness. Yeah, he was only 38. By the time I, I think I was... Um, by the time I was 21, I'd lost um, my best friend when I was 16. She unfortunately committed suicide. My dad at 18 and then um, my uh, first business partner. And it's quite a eye-opening experience for someone so young, I suppose. You know, it changes the way you view the world drastically. Um, I, I, and that's coming on to mm -hmm. like the one show. That's why it always baffled me at the time when everyone was always saying, oh, but if I were you, I would have disappeared or I would have, because to me, nobody was dead yet. And that was how I viewed it. I must admit that was kind of my, and it's always been my sort of motto for life is as long as nothing like that's happened, it, it could be worse really, let's face it. And we just kind of crack on. Yeah, my, um, my, my ex, Kevin, I don't know if you ever met him, the illustrator who does yeah. the magazine, his favorite phrase was, at least you're not dead yet. Yes, and, I like and, that phrase. And it, um, well, you know, I understand what that means, but some people, it doesn't, it doesn't, isn't, you put, when they're in floods of tears, possibly not the best thing to say. No, no. But <laughs> and I, I once said it, I once said it as well on, on a stage somewhere when they were asking about my experiences of the one show, this and that. And it's really interesting because culturally, as soon as you talk about death, the room goes quiet. Oh, yeah. Everybody goes silent. Death is like a topic that you don't really discuss. Whereas I'm quite open about it. I think it's quite important that as a society, we talk about it more. Um, I think that I, would help people. I think you're right. I think that um, very often, um, if people haven't experienced bereavement, they really, really get very scared. They don't know what mm -hmm. to say. They're very uncomfortable. And if you're the one experiencing the bereavement, you, yeah. you can misinterpret that as them not caring because they really just want to get out of the room as soon as possible because yeah. they don't want to say to you. And it's yeah. just... Um, or you get the other the other side where people always ask you, are you okay? And how are you? And you're like, how do you think I am? What a silly question. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's a bit bizarre. And so I think from that point of view as well, I know it's people only caring and it's what we're pre-programmed to say, but actually the best thing you can do sometimes is just say nothing and give someone a hug. These days we can't, which is unfortunate. Yes. But at least true. tell people that we love them, you know, and that's more than sufficient. The rest yeah. is kind of yeah. hot air, really. Um, and unfortunately, it's a club that once you're a member of it, um, mm -hmm. you're a member for life, aren't you? Yes. And, yeah, yeah. and hopefully when you see it in other people, um, you remember how raw it was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't actually ever stop being raw. It just you. No, and I hate the saying, like, uh, uh, time's a healer. Because you don't heal, you it, time changes things. You feel differently over time. I suppose more of the memories that make you smile prop out than maybe more yes. that, that make you cry in the beginning, you know? Yes. But 
uh, saying you heal, like you don't heal after loss, you change and you develop as a person. And I think yes. it's, it's slightly it different. Becomes, it becomes part of you, doesn't it, mm -hmm. really? Yeah. It's an experience that you wouldn't want to deny. It's, no. it's part of your history. And it's, mm -hmm. I, I think it probably makes you more mature because you've, you've already dealt with some really, really shitty things that have happened to you so in a way um it's a bit like because ian dunbar's always saying that isn't it that the golden retriever that's never tested when it first gets hurt may bite hard whereas a dog that's had lots of things happen to it learns to not bite quite so hard because it's so if you've had lots of horrible things happen to you in a way you expect it and when it doesn't happen um i i'm a, i'm a, one of those people that goes around because when it, like you do have there, three mm -hmm. things happen quite closely. It's very hard to trust that it's not just going to keep on at that pace. Because yeah. I, I felt that was nothing was permanent when I, I lost both my parents really quite suddenly mm -hmm. within a relatively short period of time, a few years, but both, both before their time, but nowhere near as tragically early as, as, as you experienced. But it suddenly went from being oh you know you don't even question that these people are there and and mm. all of a sudden they're, they're not and it happens again and you go well who next and and you start feeling everything's temporary because yeah. you 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 don't get yeah. but what the other the flip of that is yes it's temporary so you may as well do your best and get on and make and enjoy it as well life yeah. is so fleeting and, and yeah. we spend so much time stressing and worrying about things in reality are not really that relevant we may as well enjoy the time that we've got live in the moment because that's the mm -hmm. thing i always think the dog is um why it's so happy is mm. it doesn't it doesn't you know it doesn't hold grudges it doesn't um yeah you know, it, it just it's happy. I mean, it's just that that's the way dogs are most of the time is, you know, they become content. And well, that, yeah. that may be my anthropomorphic way of looking at it, because I just think, yeah, you know, they don't have to worry these days. It's not like they have to go and hunt for their dinner. I mean, they've got everything on, you know, laid on for them. But that's when it all goes wrong, when they don't have everything. Let's get back to how we managed to meet or not even meet how i really very nearly ruined your life um, <laughs> <laughs> um yes you so shifting forward <laughs> yes yeah oh dear um yes I, I um heard that the one show had a new dog trainer and i was very interested but i didn't see it before i heard about it so that's the way I heard about it was other people saying, have you watched it? Now, how did you get on the one show? Come on. How, how so, did you get uh, um, After, um, obviously the first producer I worked with, I was um, chatting to a, a friend about um, what we'd made together, me and the other producer, and how I'd love to do some training and, and train on TV and create. Initially, my idea was a, like a documentary type thing, and I was really pushing for it. And he said, "Well, look, let's film something together." He was a producer, at, and he worked at the BBC, and so that was how. Was he your godfather as well? No, a very no. very close friend, though. You're, you're close, oh, right. but very, okay, um, as good as because he uh, he's like family to me. Um, 
um, that's initially why I hadn't said anything to him and approached him was because he, we are so close and he's like family that, you know, you don't tend to want to, to, to pull on those relationship strings too often. And so I thought I would just keep plugging away. And once he'd heard and we'd chatted about it, he thought it was a great idea. And we worked on a pilot together and that pilot footage was what was used as those little segments on the one show. Yeah, because he must have seen it and thought, wow, that's dynamite, because it was, um, as your your inspiration was mm -hmm. probably the most successful TV trainer of all time, rating-wise. Yeah. To the un uninitiated, the sort of being able to solve people's problems in a shorter space of time probably made great television. Yeah, made great te television. And I think also, like, when you look back on things, obviously the environment's slightly different now to what it was then. I think it was the first time there was a real proper public pushback against that type of methodology, if I'm honest. And there's still occasionally people that appear on TV with TV shows that now I shake oh. my head at. I don't, I'm baffled, like, how they've got it, 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 neither it, here nor there. I despair. I really yeah. do because, <laughs> really, um, there's there's much worse now than there ever was, and and I'm I'm absolutely mm -hmm. baffled by it. But I I do you know uh, I think we, we really need to to sort this. Well, sort this country out, don't we, Jordan? We need to sort it all out. <laughs> yes. Anyway, we'll get on to solving all the world's problems in a minute. But yeah, okay. You ended up with. So, and End up on the one show, and I had like these great seg segments. There was uh, two or three of them, three of them, I think. Um, there was the first one that went out, that obviously was what dropped on your desk the next morning, um, and people were going, "Hey, have you seen this guy? And what he's up to?" Then um, there was a second one that was released, and then after that, the campaign picked up. So the campaign that you started and spearheaded with. Um, <laughs> spearheaded with uh, uh, quite a few people in the industry, but I know that Victoria, they were taking quotes from Victoria Stilwell and quite a few oh, others. Yeah, we, 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 I'm afraid, yes, there was, there was, there was quite a number of us. There was the, the yeah. charities, the Kennel Club. Um, mm -hmm. It was, um, it was the early days of social media. And yes. um, I'd written a blog, a cold, wet nose blog. Um, and unfortunately, your name fits what we ended up with the campaign, Get Jordan Shelley Off the Telly. The telly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the campaign group. There was Get Jordan Shelley oh. Off the Telly. There was a second one as well. And Ooh, um, the second one? I, I don't think I was in that one, was yeah, I? Yeah, no, there was two. There was, you know what everything's like in Dogland. No one ever agrees with anybody. Oh, yeah, so there, there has to be two of everything set up. Maybe three. Let's make it three just for good yeah. luck. Yeah. Um, and... I um so yeah the, the the two of them were set up the Daily Mail then started running articles it was a journalist called Paul Revoir um uh who I actually have spoken to since interestingly oh, really? yeah well, we had a in your hedge uh, and, and jumping out at you and taking... he wasn't hiding in my hedge no i no. wish he was because that would have been very funny but um <laughs> no, there, were, there were they said photographers that were hiding in my hedge so we had uh three people on motorbikes hanging around down the driveway for a couple oh, of weeks um, <laughs> yeah and the male um obviously ran the article uh and then ran 
and we're going to run a second because I, I was advised by everybody don't say anything to anybody stay quiet and it will blow over and then you crack on or whatever I and mean, that was kind of the advice was just stay quiet really and don't get involved don't talk to journalists um and then I read your blog I think it was to start with no what broke it first actually was Paul was about to send out a second article which mm. went into really slating the producer I worked with who was a really close friend and I was very upset um, and so I rang him. They went after um, him. They, they, yeah, they, I, went, I was upset that they went after him because I yeah. didn't feel like that was very fair. Going after me for methodology, um, at the time I wasn't sure whether it was fair or not, but that's okay because I was the one on the telly, but to go after him and say that he'd used me in some way when realistically, out of anyone, it was me that was using my relationship with him, I felt like that was very wrong. Um, and so I rang him up and then they uh, didn't publish that second article actually, which is quite nice. Um, and then uh, I read something on your blog. So you had the cold, wet nose blog, and I read uh, it's a shame people like these or these types of trainers don't want to find a better way of training or something along those lines. I can't remember it off the top of my head. It was it was something like that. And I don't want to remind you of it. No, I, I rang you up. I, I, I didn't know you at all. I'd only <laughs> seen you on television. And yeah. now I, I, I feel I know that the world of dog training, and you'll know this now, is quite a, like a village. And a lot of the angst was, we don't know him. Where's he come from? This yeah. stranger on our territory. And why is he on television? We can't get on television. So there were some people who were motivated by and the dog world is very is a very small place i mean let's face it everybody does know each other and it is like a village all right um i'm sure they were some people motivated by that but the, a lot of people were motivated by the methods i've Method. chosen because um, because they you know it, it's a bit like politics um the, the, there's a massive divide between positive and the old school um, and there's also some that sit in the middle somewhere as well, just to, oh, just yeah. to confuse things a little bit yeah. more. <laughs> and and, and the, those fights are so intense that, um, yes, they, there's more, more. You, you had stumbled into a hornet's nest and you, <laughs> you were blissfully unaware. Poor 21-year-old me. <laughs> it wasn't you, just thought, yeah. oh, I'm good at training dogs. Gosh, and, yeah. and everyone you dealt with was very happy with the way you trained their dogs. And you were really good on the telly. You were brilliantly, you know, for your age, you were being all absolutely, you know, good at presenting. So, you know, you ticked every box apart from all the dog trainers um, oh. getting all, well, pretty much all the vocal ones, all mm -hmm. went, no, this, we're not having that. We, we're not having another season Milan, which mm -hmm. was what they were saying. Um, that was what they were saying. Chaos did ensue for a certain amount of time. And then I rang you, you after did. reading your I blog. I didn't think it was you. I thought it was somebody phoning up, pretending to be you and being... Because I remember the first time round you didn't take my phone call. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's just me, generally. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very unreliable. But yeah, um, I must have... Um, I probably wasn't there and, and somebody made it sound like I wasn't taking your call. But when you mm -hmm. did, when I was there and I heard it's Jordan Trilly on the call, on the line, I suddenly went gulp, you know, because mm -hmm. 
you're a keyboard warrior when you're writing blogs. You don't know the person's circumstances. And I was, it was a while ago, wasn't it? How long ago was that? That was so nine long. years this September. I'm hoping I'm not quite such a, an angry sort of person now, but I, I do. Um, <laughs> he says, definitely not agreeing and nervously laughing. Yes, fine. I try and see, you know, the 360 and sort of try and understand. But um, yeah, being confronted by the person you'd been writing about um, was like, a, oh my goodness, what's he going to say? Because really, I had just ruined your life at that <laughs> moment i mean you promising tv thing and um yeah suddenly the the, the, the rug was rug ripped was out so from under <laughs> it was horrid yeah. and you've got yeah. you know tabloid journalists you know oh, and the hardest thing horrid. i think about the tabloid journalist wasn't so much for me because i don't read any of that rubbish um but was because obviously it was in the mail so my grandma read it um and you know upset grandma that upset mum and so from that point of view, that was uh, a difficult, probably more difficult for them than for me. Because at the time, I was just trying to figure out how to navigate my way through and do what I thought was right. Um, it wasn't until afterwards, I think, that it really all I realised. <laughs> it, it was because really the, the, the papers got more interested because, well, had you been just an anonymous um, uh, there was there was it was layers there was lots of layers it was um they were frustrated there was a, a layer of frustration between the daily mail and the bbc that's been there that's generally true. because they hate each other yeah. that's like part mm. of it um and so it was like jobs for the boys kind of thing that they were trying to, to get out yeah yeah and and yeah. then um I think also when they started sending people around to the house i was living in at the time which was my grandparents um they were trying to write a slightly different article which was more about my own personal background um and that was just a, a slightly different it was kind of quite out there and quite uh left field fortunately they didn't publish going into that side of things you've you've been asked to take part in awful reality shows and you've always refused isn't it What's yes that? made in chelsea they always uh, twi uh, twice but that's for different uh ones because i also was a dog trainer and i definitely said no to that <laughs> I... anyway there we go but yes <laughs> you, you you stepped into the limelight and then you got all sorts of rubbish from lots of quarters for nothing to do with you I and mean, it was really to do with a lot of it was just to do with who you you were other people's fights got in the way and um, but my yeah. my 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 beef with you was merely Caesar Milan type things mm -hmm. so I, I I was intrigued by um what on earth was 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 also going on but more from a sort of like oh my god you know what's going on <laughs> um uh, yeah so but anyway when you first phoned up I was just absolutely back to how brave you were because to confront your critics is is tremendously brave and then there's most people just would brood and just hate that person and never ever want to talk to them ever again and you know just be you know not very well just write them off but you phoned up and you you were, you were so sweet you said <laughs> you said some nice things about me you said and um and then you said 
well, how do I find a better way of do- training dogs? And yeah, it was just like, oh, bless. I just felt terrible <laughs> that I'd, you know, you were so, so nice. And um, I think I think if anyone had rang me up and said, listen, I, I'll show you a better way of training, even beforehand, I probably would have done it. Um, just out of interest, I like learning. So I think, but especially then being confronted with all these people complaining and really not understanding why. I really, I was baffled at this point as to what, what it was. Don't get me wrong, I'd seen the odd episodes of Victoria Stillwell, but even in those days, I'm talking like first series. Early series, yeah. Early series, yeah, was still not, not positive in, in, in the sense that there were still like references to Pat. Uh, hierarchy and various things yes um so for the time i i was baffled at the time i was baffled by it and then you um put me in touch with uh ian dunbar in america by email um who was so lovely uh mm-hmm. i can't thank him and uh, um, kelly enough for then mm-hmm. deciding to put me up in, in, their, in their house in we should tell people who it is because oh, Dr. Ian Dunbar. Sorry, yeah, I'm not very good. There's a whole generation of people who, who um, haven't wow. been experienced of Ian because Ian um, was a British vet um, who thought he could save more lives um, training dogs than being a vet, and um, he was very charismatic. He still is very charismatic, and um, he went off to California to yeah. um, San Francisco. A- yeah, and and became um, an academic, and he invented puppy socialization. I'm always saying that because I think it's true. I think we didn't have puppy training classes until Ian invented. I, de- I definitely not in the same um, format at all. You know what he brought to the table was this idea of positive off-lead socialization, and yeah. it was really uh, um, quite incredible at the time. And he did a TV uh, uh, show as well on. Funnily enough, yes. Dunbar with dogs. Ian, when, when I was working at the Kennel Club, mm-hmm. um, I I was subbing and sub assistant editor on the Kennel Club's magazine, and it was very stuffy and it was very boring. But there was one article by somebody I'd never heard of, Doctor Ian Dunbar, um, and it was how to train your dog not to sit. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's a bit odd, isn't it? How to train, and it was all, oh, and I think it was one hand, how to train your dog not to come back. And mm-hmm. it just, it just twisted everything round and you suddenly saw things in a different way. And I thought, wow, this is revolutionary. And then he came in one day um, and he came in to see the, the kennel club. Is that you mm-hmm. that made that noise or are we being... I think we had a motorbike go past. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, you're, it's quiet where you live, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and he, he thought, you know, bless him, it was, um, we were all naive in those days, but he'd had a meeting at the Kennel Club and he was hoping they'd be interested in positive reward-based training. Mm. And it was back in the, it was almost the Victorian era then. And um, he'd had lunch with a secretary who, who didn't really you know anything about dogs and he thought he just he was he came into our editorial office shaking his head going oh well that was a waste of time and um we became friends and I just went wow you know you're brilliant and he gave me a copy of the serious puppy training video and it's very elderly this thing now and I don't know if you've you've seen the shirts Ian was wearing he was wearing horrible Hawaiian shirts and it was that doesn't surprise me (laughs) 1970s it was very funny 
It was. It was. Did uh, he have a big beard as well? Like, no. Oh, yeah, very beardy. It was. It was. You know, <laughs> it, everything about it was. You know, it's a bit like the big Lebowski or that. I can't say yeah. that. You know that film, but it was. <laughs> you know, it was so surreal watching it. <laughs> The, the science of the dogs playing together at the puppies, I'd never seen puppies. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen someone do the law method, make the dog sit and lie down, and it was all hands off. And it was like, wow, you know, he's from the future. And I had this video, and I don't think anyone else had it. It was, um, I don't know. In those days, no, Ian was, was relatively uh, unknown in his own country. He was very famous in America, but nobody really had that much to do with him. And um, I had lunch with a TV producer. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't know. Because I was very lowly at the Kennel Club, but nobody, nobody else would talk to anybody. <laughs> I ended up swinging a lunch with the TV producer who'd done a whole series about dogs. And she, she was said she'd already got a dog trainer. She wasn't interested in dog behaviour. Mm -hmm. And I went, watch this video. And I gave my serious puppy training video away. I never got it back. I'm just wow. still upset about this. Mm -hmm. And she ditched her whole series and made Dogs with Dunbar. And Dogs with Dunbar, wow, what an amazing uh, on, series. On, a, on Sunday, ITV, prime mm -hmm. time. And it, the only TV person who'd been on before that was uh, Barbara Woodhouse. Who all kids? I'm very old, I really am. But I'm, 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 I'm yeah. Barbara what year was his show old. then? That was. What was that, sorry? What year was his show? Oh gosh, that would have been in the late 1980s. Okay. Um, okay. But yes, and- was he, It turns out he filmed a lot of it not far from where I now live. He filmed a lot of it down in the New Forest. So um, yeah, we were talking about it the last time I went out to see him and he, he says, oh, I love the, an the land where the animals roam free, which is what he calls a forest. And I love it down here too, for that very reason. With the, the lady who was the producer, this was mm -hmm. the most, because she'd gone from making quite niche programmes that wouldn't really get much of a go, to mm -hmm. her show was top rating Sunday primetime television with Ian, and it, 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 it kept going, there was many series of it, and mm -hmm. um, for a while, everything in the dog training world was all rather warm and, and, and rosy, Lovely. because Mm -hmm. This was a revolution. We were having this new gentle way of training that was good television as well. And um, but Ian was, you know, he liked he liked the sun, didn't he? He liked being in California. So he would only make his series, then he'd bugger off back over there. And um, so his marvelous life. So things were happening over here. The Association of Pet Dog Trainers um, began, yeah. and the, the people were suddenly throwing away their choke chains and it was, mm. it was it was like you know i feel like i was some old hippie or something <laughs> remembering how we changed the positive revolution yeah and yeah. and even some of the positive people still were uh, you know looking back were being quite mm -hmm. yeah there were there was training discs that made a horrible noise and you threw it on the floor and you know yeah. now we say that's not positive but it was all new and there was a, a everyone joined together and there was um but the the there were camps starting even then there were some people who quite liked being able to shock a dog still mm -hmm. or do something else aversive so it was but in ascendance were the positive people and um it and was him who got back and he really changed my life well yes ian 
who I found was a tremendously, because um, I used to then bring him over to do um, mm -hmm. book calls and things for him to do his speaks, speak, you know, he'd speak. And um, he'd always, it would always be sold out. And he'd actually spend the whole time talking about cows or, or something. And it was very funny. And people didn't mind that he often didn't talk about dog behavior or dog training at all. But he was, he was very, very, he, he was very inspirational. And he, um, when he came over, he came over to see his mum. And his mum stopped talking to him when he got divorced from his first wife. And he adopted my mum because my mum would still talk to him. Um, he'd been, you know, even though he'd been uh, silly, so as in mother's terms. And, um, so I, I've always regarded Ian as a bit of a member of the family, really, as a superstar. But I, I've always felt like he's sort of somebody I could tell anything to because he was—he mm -hmm. always turns up and always, you know, he's always sensible. He's just a really good thing. So when you said, um, "Well, how can I find a better way of training?" I thought now. If I was to be adopted by anyone, I would hmm. like to be adopted by Ian Dunbar. And I thought it's a big ask, but you know. So you sent off my adoption papers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I offered you up and said, yeah. you know, he's a nice boy. And you know, he really wants to learn. And um, and it was like witness protection, wasn't it? We sort of you were the most famous face at the time in, in it was our surreal. Like the weird thing was driving down my driveway. The little men jumping out their bushes with their cameras, the most yes. bizarre experience. And I've been hiding, by the way, and using a neighbour's drive to persuade them that I wasn't home. I've been climbing a fence and using their driveway instead. Um, and uh, yeah, then driving through that, turning up at the airport. I remember ringing you at the airport when I was about to leave to say, look, I'm on my way to America. And I was explaining as well all the funny people jumping out the bushes because you wrote a very angry post to them. <laughs> oh. I remember and then got on the plane and next thing I knew I turned up in San Francisco and there was Kelly waiting to pick me up from the airport and just the most surreal experience I suddenly turned up there I think the first night they they put me up in a hotel just in case I was a weirdo <laughs> um, <laughs> so oh, I stayed in a hotel the first course. night um, <laughs> and then after that I moved into the house <laughs> Um, and we were there for a little while um, in Berkeley, then went down to the uh, APDT conference. I think it was San Diego. Ah, um, and, and that was that, amazing. That was when you realised that this wasn't just a UK story. Because yes. Everybody there recognised you, didn't they? Because mm. they'd all been following the story. It was really weird. All these people were coming. I mean, I'm at this conference and in America, so I'm on the other side of the Atlantic, and all these people are coming and saying hello. And if if I'm honest, I think it was followed a lot more than I thought in the states uh, uh, at the time. But I didn't understand the huge crossover in that dog training village that we all live in, and and the crossover between the UK and America is huge. Um, and we all share uh, um, a lot of friends online. I mean, like half of the people that follow me are in the States, half of them are in the UK, and I go out there and talk now. I love it. Um, and I think, yeah, it was a, that was a real interesting experience. But what was nice, though, was um, I found that the positive dog training world were very, very welcoming towards yeah. you. So they went yeah. from, you know, trying to, you know, ruin your life to... Um, Cheering you on. I was surprised, like when I got there, uh, um, so we went down to the APDT, and one of the first people I saw there was Victoria Stilwell. 
Mm. Um, and she said to me, oh, would you like to like, have a coffee? I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love uh, to have a coffee. And she was so apologetic. <laughs> um, and we had such a lovely conversation. I'm so glad that we've been friends ever since. I mean, you know, uh, uh, and she's been very supportive over the years through messages and whatever. And we, we chat and we went to the Animal Hero Awards together last year, which was well, great fun. Smart. I was very impressed. You I was I was actually out of my wellies and tracksuit and mm. I had a trim and everything for that one. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah, I look very smart. It's lovely, Victoria. And Victoria yeah, had very... lots of crap as well at the beginning mm. as well. And still, you know, the dog world is not very nice. I mean, people no. are, are, are quite cruel to each other. And yeah. I, I think but, but you find that actually, I, what I've always found anyway, is that people that seem to have made it in the industry and are well known, they're all really lovely. Yes. It's only people that are bitter for whatever reason, and it's usually their own reason, that aren't, if I'm honest. I, I mean, like Ian took me under his wing. Victoria was lovely. It was when I first met Grisha Stewart. And she was doing her first tour upon that. And uh, the two of us hit it off immediately. We've been best friends ever since, I, I think, you know, and everyone was so kind. And when I came back to, there's more in America, but also when I came back to the UK, people were also really kind here. I mean, even Steve Mann rang me up and said, mate, come for a coffee, onwards and upwards. And that was kind of how it was. Everyone was very kind and supportive and, and, and helped guide me, um, which I'm very grateful for, because I didn't have to. Well, I think that's the thing. I think everyone was just impressed that, you know, and I think it was also, it was quite, everyone was quite evangelical about this. It was sort of like, if we can save this, 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 this chap from becoming a, a, an equally popular Caesar Milan-esque British version, um, you know, wouldn't that be amazing? When we get you back on the telly being positive um, with methods that won't, you know, everyone can sleep at night. Well, I liked it. Uh, um you wrote an article not long afterwards i think it was uh, uh, phoenix rises or something yeah. was the title and your end line of the thing was get short jordan shelley back on the telly yeah. which made me giggle <laughs> well you know i think that's the thing i because mean, you in a way it was like you went to university only you went to the university of dog dog world life i mean you you you've spent time with some of the greatest experts in this field, um, in a way, you wouldn't have got anywhere near as many people if you hadn't have been seen as someone everyone wanted to help. Uh, yeah. You know, because I remember some people were really quite bitter about that. They were going, "It's not fair. I've always wanted to meet all those people. Why is it, why is it happening yeah. to Jordan?" And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've read all the books. I've done all this, and and it was I, interesting. What I also found interesting as well was how many. Um, aversive trainers came out after the fact so after i'd already been to america they weren't sported during the whole campaign that was set up <laughs> against me i waited until i'd gone and learned and studied and then came in to bulldoze me afterwards i found that uh, um, interesting that that uh, taught me a few lessons how do, how do you get on with someone now who is an avowed um dominant very well i i you know uh, i don't that's uh, uh, it's up to them, their own choices and their own. I'm not one for pushing things like that on um, other people. I tend to just go by showing my success with dogs, you know? So often I find it with clients, like they'll turn up with these preconceived ideas about what they want to do with their dog. Um, mm. And it's often aversive and 
And I don't usually correct them. I usually just show them what it is I'm doing and they see it work. And then I'd write, we'll have some of that. And it's really that simple. I think if you spend time arguing or fighting with people, you're not really going to get anywhere. I'm not, I'm not convinced it was the, the campaign that got me to cross over. I'm convinced it was the assistance I had afterwards. Yes, and, oh, I, I absolutely. Because I, yeah. I don't think... Um, if I'd I mean, been left where I was after that campaign without meeting anybody, I yeah. reckon I would still be an aversive trainer today. Possibly. There's more chance. Whereas having met all those people and them really investing that time and effort into teaching me I think was what was really valuable and I think it's the same with others you know even with other trainers that I meet that are aversive trainers uh, uh, now you know if they say they can't do something with a dog I'll just show them it works and they go wow that's amazing how do you do that and you just show them that's it's really that simple and they go great and I'll buy some more of that success please. Um, so do you think that there is because well when the world you discovered Mm -hmm. wasn't terribly obvious before all that happened do you think that in a way it is still quite a closed world the dog yeah world? yeah what we don't realize is we live in i mean i'm sure some people do but we live in echo chambers on social media 100 mm -hmm. there are these algorithm based echo chambers where all you hear is what you want to hear and what you want to see um and so yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that are completely unaware and for some reason, aversive type training and trainers seem better at promoting their content, their free content. And I don't know what that is, I don't know why, mm -hmm. but that's an observation that I've made and I would love to try and change. Um, you know, and there seems to be a lot more content out there and it is, it's, you have to travel a little bit and explore a little bit before you discover that uh, um, positive training bubble. Um, but I do believe that the tide is turning in this country in particular um, and things are becoming more and more positive based. Because you know. I, I think we've, we've, we've talked about this, um, how confusing the dog world is because everything's yeah. initials and there's everybody's got initials after their name. And Oh, there's acronyms for everything. You, oh. you could do the whole letter, the alphabet uh, in every single letter and you make some kind of organisation. It's very complicated or some kind of training method. I, I, did, I did a survey where um, I listed all the training organisations, all the initials, mm -hmm. and then I made up a load as well and just put them in. <laughs> and I asked people to tick the ones I knew and people were ticking them, the ones I'd made up, um, as yeah. well as the ones that were real because beyond, nobody can hold that in their head, all that information. And for doesn't the surprise me. It, it's like, well, you know, we kind of all understand what a you know GCSE and an A level is. Some of us are yeah. pro levels, but you know, for dog training, there's no recognised qualification that um, the general public can look for to know definitively. But not definitively, no. It's that's why it's. I mean, there are there are pushes in the industry to try and create. The only thing is, is that they have created different camps, and that is somewhat complicated um but there are pushes in the industry to try and make it a little more clear-cut I, I don't know uh whether it will succeed i'd like to think that it would but we'll i suppose we'll see it would be nice to have um something that's sort of coded in some way so that at least mm -hmm. you can be 
this is someone who no matter what would never use this method well there's the dog training and behavior charter that's just uh, been announced which incorporates a number of organizations which i think does that and then there's the uh, abtc which is another red letters but the abtc is uh, an umbrella organization that i suppose does uh, uh and it does give people a certain amount of um, surety that they know what they're going to get, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, but it is, mean, you're right, it's complicated. And it is, it's sometimes hard. you feel like you're drowning in, what was it someone said to me the other day? I feel like I'm drowning in uh, alpha, alpha, alpha spaghetti spaghetti or whatever yeah, it is, alpha, you know. And I was like, it's yes, true. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely right. Because, you know, somebody's initials could have been got online over a, a weekend uh, without ever actually being seen by anybody. And someone else who may have spent four years, you know, studying. Yeah. And that then that doesn't even begin to look at all the different types of uh, training um, methods there are that also have mm -hmm. acronyms and letters and this and that. And it's just like for the average person, it's mind boggling. Yeah. Like they look okay. at it and go, all I want is a dog that's happy and well behaved. <laughs> Thing is that the academic side of it is well is academic because if the person is good at exams doesn't necessarily mean they're good at putting things over to people and to dogs so you could have someone who's you know on paper brilliant but actually can't teach because that really the whole thing is you have to be a bit of a, a psychologist because you have to make it fun for the human to become a better dog owner well, they, they have to want to engage and that's not always easy, especially when you have people come with preconceptions of what training is. Um, and I think it's uh, owner engagement's huge and that's that's really what will change the dog's life. And so if you can't engage with the person, um, then you're going to struggle uh, uh, in dealing with the behavior of the dog because it's often, you know, all interrelated. Dogs are like big ecosystems. Um, that have so many different things surrounding them that impact them. You know, we spend a lot of time, I work mainly now doing uh, focus workshops. So that's around like dogs around, focusing around live animals. So if you live on the forest where there's loads of creatures and things mm -hmm. and reactive dog workshops. And it's amazing how often people are uh, um, coming to me so totally confused with everything that they've been offered. Um, because there are there's just so many acronyms so many different names and so many different organizations that people don't really know when to start and they spend a lot of time looking at uh, um, well let's like look at triggers say and so they look at oh the dog reacts when he sees a, another dog but they don't say well, what's the dog been through his whole day like has he had a stressful day what's he had for breakfast what hasn't he had for breakfast was he poked up the bum by the child um, you know there's like a whole load of things that come before seeing that dog that make you react and so it's not just a matter of uh, uh, working through setups it's also about being able to understand the dog's life the person's life and how you can make changes I mean in some cases I've managed to make changes in the lives of people and dogs without actually doing any setups and the dog's then comfortable around other dogs all of a sudden. It's just because you decrease the level of stress or the level of pain that the dog's in. I mean, there's loads of factors. No, and I think that's the thing. Some people are drawn to a career in dogs because they don't like people. Mm -hmm. And this is not going to work if you want to be a dog trainer because no. <laughs> really most of it is people. Oh, I, I, I'm contemplating... Um, going to do some kind of a a diploma in psychotherapy mm. because i i feel like so much of what i do is actually 
uh, about changing people's behavior as well as the dogs and sometimes changing their expectations as well. I think that that's a really huge thing. And, and so that's somewhere on my list of the many things that are on my list. <laughs> But it would be very useful. Very good. Because I think that's the thing is that you've really you've got to make it fun for the person. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, really, you you are making the as you say, you're making their life so much better. So if you can offer them the all round sort of, you know, life coach that you can go in there and sort out all their problems. (laughs) I mean, the amount of times I've turned up to train a dog and and they've rung you and said oh you know my dog hates my husband and you get to the house and you go i think it's you that hates your husband yeah. <laughs> i mean how do you say that politely but really the dog's just feeding off what you're feeling yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, and that's a big true. one too so I, uh, I i must admit when i used to have a very i was very close to a dog that had been very ill when it was little and um sally used to come to work with me all the time and there was someone i worked with who i was not very i wasn't a good boss i wasn't very good at you know, being stroppy with people and telling them off in my early days I was very good at telling you off but now <laughs> on a one-to-one basis I was not great on confrontation and I, I was building up to tell this person off and then all of a sudden my dog picked itself up and went over and bit her dog and I thought oh my god you know the dog is so in tune with me she wasn't normal for her to do that but mm. yes dogs do pick up on what we're thinking and what we're feeling and um yeah sure and they they they, listen if they can detect uh, um types of narcolepsy and epilepsy we have all these different scent changes in our body depending on how we feel uh and they know a hundred percent of it um i think it's yeah i think it's really important that we take that into consideration yeah it is an amazing bond so Have you got a very good bond with with all the dogs you've got at the moment? Just the special loads of dogs. Um, the special one sat next to me. You know, uh, mm. I can't really have a favourite. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Stormy and I. I think she, I've been. She's been with me the longest. The little Chihuahua who's sounder next to me. Um, and then you know, I, I have this big old Spanish Mastiff called Nana, and Nana Bear is oh, she's beautiful and and. She's a very special dog. I can't, it's difficult to say, because then then the Jack Russell's a character and I love her. She's absolutely bonkers, but I love her. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with the, the shepherd, who's a nutcase. And same with the big bully. He's also uh, uh, a bit bonkers too, so. Uh, um, quite a variety there. Oh yeah, variety is the spice of life. <laughs> it's like the variety pack of dogs. Um, and they all came to me for various reasons. I mean, rescues and whatever. and. You know, I, I never really uh, uh, chose any of them. They all kind of chose to come live with me, I suppose. Um, yeah, they're all lovely. I, I can't really have a favourite. And I love parrots. Bizarrely, though, people always think dogs are my favourite animal, and they're not. Mm. What do you think my favourite animal is? I think you're going to say parrot. <laughs> no, it's a duck. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I love parrots, but I love ducks. I find ducks fascinating. Oh. I could sit and watch ducks all day. Is that really weird? <laughs> I love them. Weird. But we what, have pet ducks in the garden, and honestly, I could spend hours watching them. The way they scratch their little heads, and the way they do the funny little dance when they haven't seen each other for a little bit. They do a funny little head bobbing dance. It's great fun to watch. Don't get me wrong, I love the parrots too, but the the ducks are something special in my opinion. I don't think there's ever been um, a TV program about ducks, has there? Um, no, I'll be a duck trainer. There we go. <laughs> 
go. Well, have you ever thought of getting a duck tolling retriever? Um, <laughs> you get Nova right. Scotia duck tolling retriever. Yeah, but you'd probably hate that because they'd be. You know, I was going to say I don't need any help, help rounding the ducks up. They all come over for a cuddle anyway, so it's, it's okay. Yeah, they're very, uh, very tame. Um, very tame. Very oh, pretty idyllic. Um, yeah. So. Jordan, what are you? What are your plans? Because I, you know, I, 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 I do feel like I, I I've adopted you slightly. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I, I want to know where you know where are you going now? Because I think you should be on television. And I'd like I, I, I've after the after my trip to the states and everything else, I hid in my house for a while, mm. just rescuing dogs which taught me loads of things. And that's kind of what I've spent most of my time doing, if I'm honest. Um, we've had, I stopped counting at 300 foster dogs through the house. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I stopped counting at 300 okay. and we've definitely, we've definitely, I'm 99% sure we're pretty close to the four figure. Yeah, so and we've done loads of dogs. So I've loved that. And, and that's in the last year or so, I think taken a back seat to my teaching um really and that's what I spend most of my time doing I love her I, I wouldn't do anything I, anything else I'm lucky because the covid and the lockdown and everything else that we've had that we've had has kind of made me reevaluate. it's forced me to reevaluate anyway the what I'm doing with my time and how I teach and so instead of doing groups like I did before I now only do one day one-to-ones with people Mm. So they're all four hours long and we work on the things that I enjoy doing and that's it. So I, I either have dogs that are reactive in some way um, or that struggle when they're surrounded by uh, uh, loads of other creatures and that need, need help and, and, and some kind of focus on with their owner in that kind of environment. Um, and those are the things I enjoy doing. We might do another one for, I'm trying to think of a polite way to put it, but teenage knobheads is all I've got really because <laughs> they do kind of hit a stage where just like people especially the boys they become a teenager hey um and that's fun and so suddenly all that hard work that puppy owners have put in in their puppy classes and they spent ages trying it all just goes out the window because yeah. the dog's sense of smell kicks in his hormones kick in he's like well hey I'm off and that's it mm -hmm. and it's around that time when people really need some kind of help and assistance and so I think I, I'd like to try and write something for that um, and that's really that and growing my own food is what I started doing in lockdown which has been so much fun mm -hmm. uh, I can't tell you I've really enjoyed that I think that's all I really want to do I, I love it don't get me wrong if someone came along and said Jordan would you make something nice and pretty for tv I might <laughs> I want I want to make television with you because I think you'd be we could do some fantastic things that would um yeah I, I want i want to well you you know i'm going about this yeah. but we 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 do need well next year on. next year uh, in september will be the 10 year anniversary of the one show mm. i have an idea for a documentary that i would like to make on the 10 year anniversary of the one show so who knows let's have a chat after this <laughs> yes yes i'm yeah i put my hand up for that yeah yeah um, yes yeah, yeah. And, and i don't mind admitting how, how my part in your downfall so. <laughs> but no it wasn't a downfall it was my, your part in my creation i would say you know there's no such thing as an end to a story unless you want it to be an end and it was the beginning for me it really was i i, I don't get me wrong they, they were uh, over the, the first few years kind of like adjusting and 
it did make me question what I was saying when I spoke more, which sometimes maybe is not a bad thing. Um, but uh, um, other times, obviously, you get a bit unsure after your whole world was ripped apart. <laughs> but, you know, you build up. And, and actually, I, I love what I do, and I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for that. So, you know, I have to say thank you, I suppose. Well, you know. Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, no, but uh, yeah, we, 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 yeah, I will start up the campaign, get Jordan Shelley back on the tennis. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep doing that because I do think you've got a lot to offer. I think you're very good at um, communicating um, a message. And now you've, you've you, you know, that's what we need. We need someone who makes good telly. Who... I just, and I think, you know, uh, um, going to america learning everything i did and and everything i learned about dogs hasn't necessarily made me want to be able to tell you but it, it's made me um uh, really also try and understand myself better as a person i think and understanding behavior from a dog's point of view has made me try and understand my own life i suppose more i i if it wasn't for um, a very long conversation one evening with Grisha Stewart about my fear of crowds. I, have a, I had a terrible phobia of crowds. You'd never know it now. Um, which was caused from my dad's funeral, actually, because there were so many people there. And it was because I did something akin to bat on myself at a few outdoor festivals that I managed to get over it. Um, and it's really interesting because I think having had some of the experiences I have as a person allows me to translate sometimes what the dogs are going through in a way that other people would understand. Mm -hmm. It's all well and good throwing acronyms at people, but unless they, they can empathise and sympathise, they're not really going to truly understand why you're doing things differently. Talking um, acronyms, explain to the, the viewers what BAT is because they behavior not, adjustment training. BAT. <laughs> BAT. BAT. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a behavior adjustment training. Um, and if you go and have a look at Grisha Stewart and all her videos and her book, I mean, there's loads on it out there, but it's basically um, a way of, of empowering the dog and changing the dog's behavior by allowing them to make the right choices and setting them up in a way that they make the right choices. Um, but it, I could sit and talk for hours about this and I, I don't know whether we have that time. <laughs> but I really think if you haven't, I would go and have a look at it, and, you know, that, and, and there's a few others uh, um, that are really useful. But I think, you know, like anything in life, all these different techniques that are available, they're a little bit like a buffet and you have to choose like bits and pieces on your plate that suit you and your dog, as long as they're all... Uh, um, my opinion as long as they're non-aversive and they're all kind uh, um caring ethical techniques then you should you should go through and use a plethora of things that, that make you and your dog comfortable it's not about just sticking to one rigidly because that's all you know and, and that's all you want to know that's all you want to do it's about actually choosing the things that are right for the dog and spending some time occasionally just stopping breathing and turning around and asking the dog how that was for them and then maybe reevaluating and, and mixing things up again the one thing we haven't covered is your um mm. you did a lot of um you were, you were you're in a lot of photos um <laughs> breed specific legislation oh yes there's lots of photos of, of me campaigning outside parliament uh, um against bsl and 
I was uh, um, very, very interested and, and very much in touch with everyone when there was the EFRA committee going on in Parliament. I attended a few of the uh, sessions and I was actually away teaching in America at the time of the last one. So I watched the whole thing live at the wrong time of day. I was in the middle of the night and I was shouting at the machine um, <laughs> from America. It's the one I, I watched. Um... Mm -hmm. It did really feel like something might happen. It, it did. So, so just before I left, it felt like we were really close to changing the law to maybe bringing about um, a space in which it's OK to be shaped in a certain way as a dog. And actually, it's all about uh, um, owner education and um, the individual dog's behaviour rather than necessarily what breed or type they have. Mm. And that's, that's the other thing as well, as a lot of people say breed specific legislation, there's nothing breed specific about the legislation, it's type specific legislation. Mm. And that's one of the vaguest like uh, um, groups that you can, like a type of dog, it can be anything that's yeah. mixed together, that looks vaguely like that dog, it's just yeah. absurd. And the fact that DNA doesn't stand up in court, you can tell you've got to tell. You know, the, the fact that DNA doesn't stand up in court, it infuriates me. Uh, no sense does it i mean that, that's the thing it's tape, it's tape measure um in, instead of people using their brain i mean if we did it to people if we went around measuring people's noses and and saying oh no this man's got a very short upper arm therefore he must be a criminal you know it would they'd be laughed out of the courts but well, we do it for dogs yes and if the if the purpose of the law was to make people safer it's been proven just simply by looking at the, the increase in bite statistics and fatalities that it does not work. And the only thing that will work is education, both of owners and of children in schools and of parents and the whole plethora of people that are in this country. Everyone needs an education on at least a basic understanding of dog's, dog behavior. And I'd love to get into to schools and talk to kids that are scared of dogs even and just let them understand what the dog, then there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, we are, we're only afraid of the things we don't understand. And as soon as you understand, it, it's not so scary anymore. Um, and that would be so nice. I really, I, I, if, if there was a real push for education-centric, uh, um, education-centric legislation when it came to dog safety, I think that we'd be in a much better place as a nation. Mm. Well, I, I, when I spoke to um, Mr. Cooper, John Cooper, the QC, mm. We, uh, I mentioned to him that in other countries they do things differently and we've ended up with this weird thing where the dog's guilty until proven innocent and even yeah. uh, we don't seem to see that and the owner in Spain we don't see the owner at all and in Spain when when uh, I was there and we were down particularly in the uh, Andalusia because I know that each uh, area is slightly different I know that uh, in the province of Andalusia, a dog over a certain number of kilos, I believe it's like 20 or 25, must be on a lead and whatever in public. And I think that's sensible. I know that and it might upset a lot of people that have big dogs, but actually I think, you know what, that's quite a sensible way to move forward. Let's get rid of the breed specific part of it. And let's say realistically, dogs over a certain size can cause more damage because they're just physically bigger. Uh, um, and so in public, they should be on the lead. But that doesn't negate the need for education because most bites are on children at home. So we need to educate. It's vital. Like it really is. I... That's been the problem is that people acquire dogs for status and then they, they don't realise that they needed to gentle their dog. They needed to make them be safe around their own family. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, 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 they just don't understand that. Yeah, you've got to bring the dog upright and um, if you lock it outside and then you let it in 
unsupervised, yes, all sorts of horrible things can happen. Well, and, and just like to leave a child and a dog unsupervised. I mean, there was that awful one in the in the um, caravan in the southwest long ago. Oh, that was horrible, wasn't that it? That was horrendous. But to, to go out and to leave a child on his own inside a caravan with a dog he didn't know that has a history of, a, I mean, just the whole thing was yeah. mind boggling and, and really upsetting. It, it's very often the way things are reported as well, because mm -hmm. we what we don't read about is the number of times parental supervision has led to, to an accident that didn't involve a dog. And we, we don't know, but you know, there's that book that, um, did you know that slippers and balloons kill more people than dog bites? Mm -hmm. and, and when you start looking at the statistics, yes, the most ter terrible things happen when adults don't supervise their children and there are lots of there are terrible things that can happen if you're not actively supervising and, and that involves swimming pools ponds um other accidents in the home probably account for very many more deaths than than opening a door and a dog that's never been used to being around kids suddenly. if any child was to come visit I, I have friends come over with their kids they're always supervised. Like it's not even just around the dogs, even if they're around the chickens and the ducks, they're always supervised. Yeah. Like, and it's it's for everybody's safety, not just theirs. It's, yeah. it's you know, and I think that's a really, when you look at the actual statistics and you understand where the dog bites are happening, that's a really important message to drive home and, and just to educate people on, on what dogs are often really like shouting at you. Like I see it all the time and it's so upsetting for me as someone that can speak dog and you walk down the street or, or you see a video that someone's posted online and their dog is sat there shouting at them to try and do something differently, to try and be slightly calmer, to try not, and they really are, all the different calming signals are coming out and they just miss the whole thing. And actually, if we have that education in schools from a young enough age, that wouldn't be an issue yeah it's it's so true I, I i remember looking at this there was a case in france where um a baby had been killed by a german shepherd and that the the way the french had dealt with it was so different than the way our media deals with it um in our media when things like that have happened they very often get the the, the mother on the sofa and and everyone's obviously tremendously supportive. Oh, and they choose the worst photo of the most gnarly stock mm. image dog as well, but it's never the actual dog. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's always unexpected. And, yeah. and it's the dog that's seen as, well, a demon, uh, really, that, that somehow or other, you know, the dog is totally to blame and the people aren't. But um, in France, what happened was they took the German Shepherd away for evaluation and they examined forensically which never happens here mm -hmm. it never happens here when this sort of thing happens they looked at why this happened and they discovered that the person who wasn't the mother the person who was left to babysit had been drunk and had fallen asleep and the dog and the baby were unsupervised and they were unused to each other mm -hmm. the woman was prosecuted the dog was rehomed now that would oh. never have happened in this country no. the dog would have been put to sleep immediately and well, the dog would have been shot before the court case yeah. like it would have been that and, and they, they, they that then takes out all the evidence yeah so you can never really get to the bottom of what actually yeah. happened without a proper forensic investigation so many times this happens that something mm. awful happens and it's it's shoot them or kill them immediately mm -hmm. and then work out what happened and and you never really 
uh, Kendall Shepherd, um, lovely, lovely Kendall, um, yes. and, a, and a behaviorist, and is an expert witness on this, is, is just, you know, she's on call, ready to go to any of these scenes. And mm -hmm. she wants to examine forensically what happened so we can learn and we can stop it happening. But we never do do that in this country. So we always just then go, oh, it's those demon dogs. And, and, and it's very easy to hate the dog. But really, the dog is the dog's a dog. You've got to remember, it's a dog. It's got teeth. It's it's yeah. it's up to us to make sure everyone's safe. Um, it's responsible adults. And, and I think for some reason, it's it's a, it's a, in a, in a, a culturally, it's a relatively recent thing. I think that as dogs have come more and more inside the house. It's they're true. roaming less and less. They're they're viewed more as a little furry person. Fur baby, yeah. Yeah, um, rather than actually being Even a name. dog. People almost seem to forget that actually, just like any person, any human, you poke even myself on the wrong day uh, if i've had a bad back and a migraine and you poke me on the wrong day chances are i'll bite your fingers um and i think it's the same you know like we kind of expect the dogs to be always like cute and fluffy and just like that little teddy bear fur child on the end of the bed when really they're a living sentient being that has feelings and emotions and and has a whole however many years worth of history that they've learned things from and, and their genetics and I mean, there's so much going on in there. Yeah. We really don't respect them enough as the, in, like, the animals and the individuals that they are. I think it's quite important uh, um, because moving away from that's caused, I think, some of these issues. Like people just don't really think about the dog ever doing anything that they wouldn't assume it would, you know? They're all cute and fluffy and... It's not. the Disneyfication of them, really. There's this yeah. idea that without you actually training them, they're somehow rather, you know, like a super nanny, and they're going to be, you know, instantly going to love our new baby because, mm -hmm. you know, what we love, you know, that's all. Yeah, because most most dog people are really, really careful when they have children to to make sure they're never unsupervised, even the best behaved dog. Um, you know, I was really uh, um, blessed with uh, working over the past couple of years previously. Uh, I've worked with some good friends of mine, um, Gavin and Jeanette. Hello, if you're watching uh, Muldoon. And they are the most amazing parents as well. And I don't want to jinx it, he said it's touching wood. Um, <laughs> but watching their kids grow up around a house full of dogs like mine, you know, there's animals everywhere. Um, and how well educated they are and how uh kind and compassionate and and it's all just from education so it's just from getting in at an early enough age making sure they don't poke and prod and they don't touch things you know uh, when they shouldn't and they always ask permission first they don't just walk up to strangers dogs uh, and now they're the most beautifully well educated around all animals and i mm -hmm. think if we could just get into schools and do the same thing the world would be a, a much kinder more compassionate place as well yeah, I think when many of those life lessons would also help them to become good parents themselves, because I think that's something yeah. with us all. Um, we've all tended to move away from, you know, we all used to live, uh, you know, pretty much in the same place for generations. So we all had people to learn from around us, but it, we've become quite a lonely society where lots of people don't very insular and societies but that's probably part of the reason and i could go on for hours about this too that society's quite broken 
Yes. Yeah, mm. you know, like we've become very insular. I don't know whether you've ever read much about the Rat Park experiment. Oh no. Where they took Mr. Ratty uh, and they popped him in a cage on his own. And they gave him the choice between water and cocaine water. And when he was in the cage on his own, he became a really bad coke addict and was very antisocial and was, you know, it was quite depressed. And given the choice again in an environment where there was other, other rats and there was like socialization, he then managed to kick the addiction um, and didn't want the cocaine water. Wow. So it's very interesting with a lack of stimulation mm -hmm. and a lack of things to do, a lack of interaction with one another. I'm sure it will dry, it drives people towards um, addictions and negative or what we perceive to be negative behaviors, you know, um, and and sort of that that feeling isolated and detached. Um, and I think that's very much because we've lost a lot of our kind of community spirit and our togetherness, which I think is quite important. And there's, there's not always family groups, but familial groups, you know, of, of your close friends. And I think that they're very important pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, but that, it's also important to relate that back to dogs. And actually dogs need that stimulation. They need that. And another big thing that people don't take into consideration often is just they need some space. Like they all need their own space. Like in this house, we've got uh, uh, creatures everywhere. They all have their own little like hidey holes and space and different rooms and different places. And that's really important because without that, I think um, they will feel on top of each other. That and, and space is a really valuable resource. And 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 head butting only tends to happen over resources. Let's face it, and that's what it's all about in houses of multi dog households. It's usually some kind of resource, whether it's the person, the food, the space, the this. It's about something. Um, and so it's just making sure that everyone's fulfilled, the animals, the people, the, you know, I think it's big. Wow. Gosh, you know, who, who'd have thought we'd have talked about... <laughs> it's gone slightly off these, I well, suppose, but it's been um, great fun. No, mm -hmm. no I, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just fascinating hearing your views on things. And I, and I do think um, it's interesting to see... Uh, you, you, you say you weren't an academic child, but your view of the world now is you're very interested in so many things. You're acquiring knowledge all the oh, It's really fascinating. I didn't really get into learning until I stopped having to learn. It mm. says a lot, really, doesn't it? I mean, I didn't until I didn't have to learn. Then I started wanting to learn. And I hate I used to hate reading. I've I, I often got my head in the book now. And that I think just comes from being able to choose things that I was interested in. I was never gonna be a mathematician or an English teacher or a history teacher. I was always interested in furry things outside. <laughs> mm. um, and once I suppose I was able to um, go and, and get involved more in that, I suppose my learning kind of increased. I, I always do wonder if we'd had an option of psychology or sociology when I was at school we didn't when I at my school if I had whether that might have piqued my interest I always think maybe that might have done um because even then I was fascinated in like the way things learn and progress and so I think I would have found that interesting um, but yeah I, now I, I I love learning um it's really important you, you know and that's I think something that that experience taught me as well was that we never stop learning when you think you know all of it, chances are you know absolutely nothing. <laughs> you get the, so much confidence at the beginning of something, and then the, the more, more 
you know, the more you know that you don't know it all. And, um, and the further I, I delve into the world of like animal behaviour, uh, mm. the more I realise I don't know. I mean, don't get me wrong, I do it every day and I, I read it every day and I live it every day. But you're always learning something new, whether it's from books or from the animals around you. Uh, that's, that's good to hear. I think COVID has, has taught many parents as well that the things that we thought were important school-wise are really not important at all. I mean, once you yep. get something massive like this pandemic, you know, there's the sort of obsession with exams and, and, you know, just cramming to be able to sit an exam. It seems all rather pointless, doesn't it? When you sort of, what a waste of people's growing up why couldn't they experience lots of other things because it's not like we have to retain all our information in one place because we've we've got google now haven't we i mean this the era we're growing up on we can look things up i so, would much rather have learned to cook and to do my taxes than about parallelograms yeah. like and it would have stood me in much better stead so i think and, and and from that point of view i think that the education system is geared towards turning people into academics well, the majority of people aren't going to be academics. No. So actually, it should be geared towards something else. But that's a whole different. Yeah, it's a, it's a biggie, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a whole different rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, does, it does seem mad that we jump through hoops for, um, yeah, because practical things are more important. We've learned that now that, you know, it's the practical things that keep us alive, food and shelter and, you know, <laughs> medics. And, um, and I just think I, I think hopefully people have learned like the 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 value in each other, like yeah. that time away from each other and, and that yeah. value in each other and how much we all value having a hug. Like yeah. uh, that really, I was I was doing perfectly fine with the whole thing until I went to visit my grandma and I couldn't hug her, oh. and that broke me. Up until that point, I was fine. I was fine throughout the whole of the lockdown, the whole of everything. But when I went to go and visit her afterwards, and I couldn't just give her a hug and a kiss, that was really hard. And actually, I think just being around people, being in their presence, loving one another, spending time together. It's more valuable than any amount of money or, or physical nonsense or paperwork that you get. It just is. Just, just people are so valuable and we really ought to value them more. Yep. And also the, in, in lockdown, dogs have um, probably been the biggest winners um, in that everybody wanted a dog in lockdown. And well, that, I don't know whether that makes them winners or not. No, though, sure. it, it was <laughs> news really because yeah. the, the prices went up and up and up and the people who started cashing in were the worst people and there, there were some terrible scams going on where people were were taking money for dogs that didn't even exist and yeah. oh dear and were people gazumping each other it, and, it, and I, I read as well um something that mark abrahams mark the vet uh, um wrote and, you know, obviously all his campaigning for Lucy's Law and to end puppy farms. And I think in the last few days, he's really trying to push now for some kind of change to the early importation of dogs, because I think that's huge. I really do. And, and when you see, like, in this country, it's illegal to dock and, and crop, which is very important. Yeah. Then instead of uh, uh, to get around that, that, that legislation, people are just buying in dogs that are cropped and, and docked from abroad. And it's so wrong. And that shouldn't be a, young puppies. It shouldn't be allowed to happen. Um, and, and transporting dogs before they've gone through like their fear periods and their, their key socialization I and mean, that trauma is just 
it's yeah anyway it, I, I, it upsets me um but the I'll, I'll put a link to the petition when we do the yeah podcast. you should because it's a really i think everyone should sign it it's really going well i mean i think it's only three days in it's on about thirty thousand signatures oh, wow. which okay. really fast so it's hopefully showing the government that this is something that very definitely needs fixing because you know we're starting to become much more aware of 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 sentience of, of farm animals mm -hmm. and dogs are being treated in the same bulk export import way and there was an awful case did you see the puppies that went to the ukraine mm -hmm. where there were so many loaded into a plane and there oh. was about there was a uh, there was a huge number of them froze to death and they oh. were like sardines i mean it's just awful. awful and you're saying well, why is canada importing mm -hmm plane load of puppy farm dogs. I mean, surely we should care about the provenance mm -hmm. when we, when we, you know, because- 100%, yeah, we, and, and, and it's not, dogs don't need to travel that far. There's more than a sufficient amount already waiting for a home in like here. You know, I, I really, I have, I also have a foreign rescue dog, and this is gonna open a can of worms, here you go. I also have a foreign rescue dog, um, a big Spanish Mastin, and I know the breed very well. And that's why I got one. I know I, I met her as well. And I just think we have to be very careful about bringing in loads of dogs from far away. Yes. Uh, be they puppies from puppy farms or rescue dogs. I think that just, I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm just saying, take your time. and really go and understand and meet the dog and understand the environment they're coming from and the environment they're gonna need to succeed, I think is really huge. Because if you take a dog that's lived not just its whole life, but generations and generations, and you know, it's known to be slightly flawed, but they say what, it takes 12 generations to domesticate a fox. Mm -hmm. So if you have that number of generations and generations roaming in a feral kind of state, chances are it's very much ingrained in their epigenetics. It's very much a part of them. And that needing that freedom is very much a part of them needing to be happy and, and often, you see dogs then stuck in between four walls, just detesting life. And it's not fair. And I think that's really important as well, mm -hmm. is looking at the individual and, and understanding what's right for them, not just because it's cute in a picture on the internet. <laughs> so you're so correct. People fall in love with a photo and they, their brain turns to mush, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's just awful because they don't, they're going to live with that dog for years and years and years hopefully um and to be just falling in love with photos it, it's oh, it, it it breaks my heart because no matter no matter how much education people have we mm -hmm. are the way we are wired is that um we look at a puppy and we've got big cute eyes and you go oh, oh cute <laughs> actually know it's wrong people still go nuts and that's the thing is we need things in place that make it easier for people to do the right thing and one yeah. of the ways of sorting this out is saying well, look there's no it's now illegal to in england anyway hopefully soon scotland some sometimes some soon wales to have third party selling puppies so yeah. no pet shops no um online retailers so why would you allow lorry loads or plane loads of puppy farmed puppies into the country i mean it's it's, it's a customer should be able to say no that mm -hmm. this is wrong because 
that every every load we bring in subjects another generation of others to slavery. And it yeah, is and I and I also do worry as well about um, um, rescue puppies being bought yes. in for really high donation levels, and it does make you wonder. Yes, I, I do. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not suggesting for a minute that there's any legitimate charity that brings stuff over that's breeding dogs to bring them over, but. It does make you wonder what's going on on some of the less legitimate van loads that are coming in, you know, and you just see all these really cute dogs that yeah. it's bizarre. Like, where have they come from? Well, even even the most reputable, um, mm. you can see it from someone else's perspective. If you're in a, in a place where there are lots of stray dogs and you know that are really, really successful rescue would take this one in front of you if it was pregnant rather than an older dog that is just hard to home well the temptation's there isn't it yes. to, yeah. to, to make more rescue dogs yeah and, and i don't want to upset anybody because i'm sure i've got friends that are listening that run rescues from um that rescue dogs from other places and that rescue dogs here. Uh, I don't want to upset anybody, but I do think it's really important that we have this conversation open and honestly, and without it turning into, because it always does, it always boils down to, oh, well, all dogs should be rescued and you're just a racist, doggist, racist yes. person. I get that a lot. And I, I'm not racist against any dogs from other countries. What a bizarre thing to say. I have a load. Um, I'm just, I just think that in a lot of cases, those dogs would be happier either in free roaming sanctuaries or being spayed and neutered and released, or uh, um, maybe in the limited number of homes that are here with people that are experienced enough that know what they're doing. But that's a, there's a limited number and it's not your average family. You can't just dump a street dog on your average family. It doesn't work. You need, you need to have very, very special homes for these, because very often the most damaged dogs are the ones that get all the attention and, and then people will go to the extra yard to, to save that one dog because you can change that dog's life and you feel that if you left it there it wouldn't survive but there is a middle ground where people fall in love with photos and don't realize how difficult it's going to be and there's huge numbers of dogs that go missing because they the dogs are so completely disorientated and as soon as they take the slip lead off um they're off. The transfer they're off and mm -hmm. they must be so confused as to what on earth's going on because they've they've just no experience of this country and yeah, I do. I do think that that perhaps. No, I see. Because I would also argue that a lot of the dogs I saw when living in, say, Spain, that were free roaming, were a lot happier. Yeah, well, I, I and they were a lot happier than a lot of dogs here. So yeah. I, I, I kind of question. Don't get me wrong. If they were in an abusive scenario, if they were locked on a yard, maybe not. But the free roaming dogs in in lots of countries I've seen actually that that's what they are that's what they've evolved for that's yeah. their that's their point within our like their ecosystem you know and we've completely forgotten that and dragged them away mm -hmm. from it and actually sometimes that can be damaging it's obviously slightly different to say storm the little chihuahua who sat on my lap uh, um that generations of generations of, of sitting on people's laps she's got in her you know and that's a slightly different story than all those generations living on the streets scavenging and hunting and, and also, on top of that, having to be afraid of men just to survive. That's a very good point. Yeah. Generation after generation, mm. having to be afraid of men just to survive, it's in there. Mm. It's innate, because otherwise you wouldn't survive. Yeah. It, it, 
there was a book um I remember interviewing the author as a Canadian lady called and it was a surprise bestseller it was something the secret life of dogs or something it was called or the hidden life yeah. of dogs and it was she all she did was she had a um like a husky type dog that she could not keep in her yard it would just escape and she decided to find out why and where it went and she observed all it did and she was just blown away by the 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 detail this dog had and the life it had when it was because it had been astray um and it 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 knew how to cross roads it would walk down from the corner and look both ways it was a super intelligent have dog. you seen the videos of dogs in you see it a lot in like um southeast asia mm. where the dogs are smart enough that they've clocked if they pretend to have a broken leg someone's going to stop and pick them up and feed them it's amazing and so they'll be walking and if you film them early enough they'll be walking perfectly normally and they see the uh, uh, rescue people come along and start limping it's fascinating and they've learned that that actually gets them the most attention more than the other dogs and it's a learned behavior and dogs aren't silly you know they're really not and i think that's the thing is that the ones that survive um in those situations where they have to beg for food and they have to avoid being run over uh, they evolve being very very clever and very many pet owners owning a clever dog is a, a curse because and i personally think the biggest reason i see or, or the majority uh, uh, of cases when i see dogs that are reactive and fearful it's because of a lack of ability to make choices in their own life um, and so if you take a dog that's had that ability to make all those choices and suddenly take all of them away how difficult must that be because yeah. I'm seeing dogs that don't know what those choices were in the first place that are struggling. So the ones that do, no wonder they find it hard. Um, and, and then you've got to spend ages and ages educating the people about how to understand what it is the dog wants and, and how to let their dogs make choices, which people aren't very good at. They're very good at telling dogs what to do, but not very good at letting the dog tell them what they want. Yeah. No, it's just fascinating talking to you, Jordan. I <laughs> talk all night. We should but, do it more often. <laughs> good, Jordan. Yes, yes. When this nasty COVID thing goes away, we'll we'll have, yes. we'll, we'll have get, get back to yes, having yeah. You can you can be my, my co-host on this podcast. We'll be we'll, fun. Get <laughs> you out there with a camera. All right. Well, thank you, Jordan. Is there anything you my want pleasure. to say that we haven't already covered? Is there, I mean, oh, you know what? I, I don't even know really where we've been, where we've gone, but it's been <laughs> great fun. I, I, I've loved it. And, and we've chatted so much about dogs, a little bit about like my story. I don't think there's anything I particularly want to add unless there's anything you do. Um, and if anybody wants to come down and join me for some dog training, they're more than welcome. They can find my Facebook page. The website's under construction, which is a, a famous phrase. I think I'm famous for saying that. It's been under construction for many years. Yeah. Um, but I have a Facebook page, uh, Jordan Shelley. If you Google or Facebook me, it'll come up. Um, and all the details for all my workshops are on there. Well, that's it, it's been lovely catching up with you, Jordan. Yeah. And I'm so pleased that you phoned me up all those years ago. <laughs> and, um, I'm, so and I'm glad you took my call. <laughs> well, you know. I, I'm very proud of, of what you've you've become and, and the journey you've been on. Uh, and I really do love that people were so nice and friendly and um, encouraging. It really did show the best of the dog world. It, it really, and I, 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 if I could implore everybody in Doglandia, just like if somebody 
seems like they need help. There's more than enough dogs for all of us to train. Like there really is. Yes. So just help them and show them and do stuff. Like it's not life's short, just enjoy it. Exactly. Well, fantastic <laughs> message to end on. Thank you so much, Jordan. And I hope I hope everyone was able to see us because we, we're not on Facebook. We're over on Zoom. So we don't we don't see. So you may have all been asking questions. We've just been taking We have no clue. Yeah, completely oblivious. No. But it's been great fun. We're, we're, we're going to go off and, and um, yeah, probably have a drink. And, 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 and uh, yes, we've been we've been at this for one hour, 40 minutes. This is Blimey. It's gone in a second, but uh, <laughs> let's hope people are still watching. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, anyway, thank you, Jordan. And um, let's do it again. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. I, I will continue to follow your career with, 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 with tremendous interest. Thank you so much, Jordan. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.